All right, I'm excited about this passage of Scripture this morning, and I'll let you know up front, um, I asked Patrick to be the reader this morning, but he was out of town, but I wouldn't ask anybody else to read this many verses. It's a lot of verses, so you follow along on the screen as I read aloud, and watch carefully because we're going to go through it, and I'm going to dissect it. One of my goals this morning is I want you to feel like you just aced a Bible college exam, okay? It was hard, but you aced it, okay? That's what I'm shooting for. You'll understand a lot of things this morning, like, wow, I'd never seen it that way before. So here we go in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 8. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts of all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rains from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. <clears throat> and in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the, arc, the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and God sent forth a, and, and sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried upon the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her feet, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month of the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his, and his, his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by, the fam by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of, of, of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And would you read the last two verses with me on verse 16? When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this is a long passage, but there's so much here to understand, and we will definitely need the help of the Holy Spirit of God to do it and to understand it and to truly believe it. Father, the world thinks this is a, a, this is a fable and a myth and a legend, but Lord, we trust you and we trust your word that this is true. And we also see evidence all around the planet that this is true. Help us to understand it, but not just to know it as historical fact, but to know how it impacts our lives as believers, as children of God. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we, many of us grow up, and this is our impression of Noah's Ark. And it may be cute for nursery rooms, but it's really unfortunate if your kids don't learn that this is not Noah's Ark. Okay, because this... It's super easy for any college professor to disprove, okay? But this is not. This is what the ark really probably looked like. The dimensions are very accurate. It was an amazing feat of architecture. In fact, the, the, the replica of it up in Kentucky, I think, should be one of the wonders of the world because it's, it's absolutely amazing. And on your row next to you, you have a, 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 another reason that we believe that this encounter is true, is just the amazing chiastic structure of the Noahic flood. You will see, as you look at this chart, and again, I have it on the screen, but it's too small to read, so I gave you a copy there on, on, on the row near you. So pull that out and look at it, and you will see how it's the parallel, the chiasm, just starts with one thing and ends with another, and it, and it goes to the three sons, but it ends with the three sons. And of course, what do you see at the very middle of the chiasm? God remembered Noah, okay? That tells us what the main point of this passage is. And 
keep in mind, it doesn't mean that God forgot Noah. The word remember here in Hebrew is what we call an anthropomorphism. It's God using human-like terms to get down to our level. But it also means that God turned his thoughts towards Noah. Because when God told Noah to go into the ark, Noah was on that structure for a little over a year. And as far as we know, didn't hear from God until God said, come out. And so Noah's like, gosh, God, are you still there? Are you still there? And God's like, hey, I, I haven't forgotten you. I remember you, okay? And so think about that when you're in the toughest times of your life and you think, God, are you really there? God says, hey, I remember you too, just like I remember Noah. So we're going to dissect this passage into three simple parts. First, God remembers Noah. Number two, Noah remembers God. And then third, God makes a covenant. Those are the three ways we're going to look at. Let's look at, first of all, God remembers Noah. And I want you to, as we're going through the story, watch for all the hyperlinks back to the Garden of Eden because they're all over the place, and I won't even cover all of them. You may, in fact, see some that I'm not even going to point out and maybe some that I haven't thought of. But look back, think about how this parallels the Garden of Eden and that story. This is God remembered Noah. Again, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't forget anything. It means he put his thoughts towards Noah, and he uses a word that we can understand. And he even thought about all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him. Remember Adam? God brought all the animals to him for him to do what? To name them. And then here's Noah goes into the ark, and what does God do? He brings all the animals to him. So, and then we saw in Mark, Jesus is in the wilderness, kind of like the opposite of a garden, and all the wild beasts were with him. You see, Adam, Noah, Jesus. And Jesus is showing how he's the greater Adam. He's the greater Noah. He's the greater Moses. He's greater than all those Old Testament prophets. And then we see another hyperlink. It says, God made a wind, Hebrew word ruach, which is the same word in Genesis where it says the spirit of God, the wind of God moved upon the face of the deep. And of course, when the spirit of God moved upon the earth back in creation, what was the world covered with? Water. <laughs> what, what, what did Noah just get done experiencing? A world covered with water. And just like the Spirit of God breathed upon the face of the earth to start forming it and shaping it, now the Spirit of God, the wind here that God sends, is drying the earth. So that here Adam walks into a new earth, and Noah walks into a newly remade earth, and everything is changed. And so you see a lot of those hyperlinks back there. And of course, we knew that this flood came not just because of rain from above, but from the, mostly from the fountains of the deep. And so both of those things stopped. And it says, and the waters <clears throat> receded from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, okay, which that's a long time, that's five months, but this isn't the total time on the ark because this is just when the waters started to go down. And then he waited, waited a long time. In fact, different scholars think it was somewhere between 371 days and 378 days, depending on how you count one of those weeks. So right at a year, Noah was on the ark, and if you subtract the week he got on before the flood, the flood was almost exactly one year, the total time of being in the ark. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. Now, he's being super specific about all these dates and these numbers. Why? Because this isn't legend. This isn't myth. This is history, and he's telling you exact dates. Now, another reason that's interesting about this seventh month and 17th day of the month and this gets complicated, and I wasn't going to go into much detail about it. In fact, I'm, I didn't want to go into much detail about it because I'm being confirmed. I've been studying for weeks trying to confirm if this is true. 
But one scholar says this, that the, the second month, Nisan, Jesus died on the 14th day of the month. And if he rose again three days later, that's the 17th day of the month. He said, well, Gary, this is seventh month. But in Exodus, God shifts the whole calendar and shifts it six months. And so this guy believes that the, the ark came to rest on the same day Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why Noah, well, Moses, is giving really specific dates. Again, I can't prove that, but that would be just like God to do that. I remember back in 1987, I was at Berean Baptist Church, and I was the youth pastor there. And we had Dr. Henry Morris, who has several PhDs, and he was one of the pioneer creation scientists. And he was a very intelligent man. And we had him come to speak at our church, and he was putting on like a week-long creation conference, and a lot of people came to that. In fact, how many of you remember Dr. Neil Frank, the weatherman? Okay, he was there, and he's a meteorologist, has a PhD in meteorology, and he's a young earth creationist, okay? And he believed in Noah's Ark and all that stuff. Anyway, I was in the lobby kind of helping people, and this guy comes in with like a backpack on, looks kind of rough. And he goes, hey, excuse me, can you help me? I, I need to see Dr. Morris. I'm like, okay, who are you? And he goes, and I, I don't remember his name. He said, I just got off a plane from Istanbul, Turkey. He said, I have something very important to show Dr. Morris. I said, okay, wait right here. I went into the office where Pastor Hudson and Dr. Morris were. And I said, hey, there's a guy here, and his name is so-and-so. And he goes, oh, yeah, tell him to come in. He comes in the office, and so the four of us are there. And this guy has photo, aerial photographs of this site right here of where they think they may have found Noah's Ark. Now, I don't know for sure if this is Noah's Ark or not. I do know that this site, that Josephus and other first century historians reference this site and how the Christians would make pilgrimages to this site and break off chips of wood and bring them back and like make necklaces of them and honor you know, of Noah and all that stuff. So whether this is uh, the actual site or not, I do not know. But it there's lots of evidence that this thing actually may be, but it's something you might want to look into. But here, after 68 more days, the tops of the mountains were seen. And once again, we believe in a universal worldwide flood. And I'm going to give you many reasons for that. But this is, it wasn't just a regional flood. And we'll talk about why that doesn't make any sense at all. The tops of the mountain being seen also is evidence of that. How could water cover mountaintops of that area, but not the rest of the planet? And so at the end of 40 more days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. Now, even the birds that he selects is for good reason. Why would you save, send out a raven first and not the dove first or any other bird? Well, ravens are scavengers. What's going to be all over the earth right now? Dead bodies, okay? And so if this raven goes out and finds food. First of all, the dove would not want to eat you know, rotten flesh, but the ravens definitely were, would. They're, they're kind of like turkey buzzards in that family. And so this, this raven flies out, and that's why Noah chose that first. And then he sends a dove, because if the raven went out and didn't come back, then okay, maybe there's, you know, I'll wait a little while, then I can send a dove to see if the waters have subsided. And you see that she returned to him from the ark. So she had no place to land. Doves are not watery animals where a raven could float on something like that and not have a problem with that and find flesh and whatever else. But the, the dove returns. And then he waits another seven days and he sends her out again. And then she comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. 
Freshly plucked, meaning it's alive. And here's the interesting thing about olive trees. They can be totally submerged underwater and continue to grow. Most trees would die, but olive branches and olive trees can survive watery. And doves like valleys. They feed on seeds and berries and things like that, so they're like low valleys. So that means the raven might have found a mountaintop, but a couple weeks later, now the waters are down in the valleys, and that's where this dove found this, this olive branch. So then he waits another seven days, and these sevens are all important because the numbers of completion, he's waiting it by weeks, and this time, the dove doesn't come back, okay? And so, um, what a relief Noah must have felt. He may have one, been worrying this whole time, is there even an earth worth living on out there? You know, the, you talk about PTSD, when that ark lifted up off the, the thing and for the first time, somebody felt sea legs, okay, Lauren, you know, and that thing is tossing around. And again, it's not a ship, it's an ark. It's not designed to sail in a certain direction. All it's meant to do is not turn over. It just meant to be like, and that thing probably was going all different kinds of directions. And all those, and, and some people estimate that there were 6,700 animals on that, which would cover all the families, again, not species, but all the families, all the canines, all the felines, all things like that, 6,700 animals. Can you imagine 6,700 animals being tossed and turned and all the noise that it made, not to mention all the smell that it probably had? That's why there was three decks, right? so you could kind of separate the smell from it all. But man, what Noah must have been feeling when this thing all settled down and the dove comes back with an olive branch? You know, what a relief through that situation. The second thing is, not only does God remember Noah, but Noah remembers God. In the 601st year, now, Noah was 600, years, 600 when he was going in, and now he's 601. Another reason we believe is almost exactly a year. So on Noah's birthday, maybe, he's like, happy birthday, you get to go out of the ark. And it says, the first day of the month, the waters had dried from off the earth. Not just the region, the entire earth. And Noah removed the covering. Again, God closed the door. God lets Noah open the door so he can come out. And God tells him to go out from the ark. First, the last command he had was come into the ark. Now God finally speaks again, as far as we know. And maybe he did speak during that time, but the scripture doesn't record that. But God hears from Noah, and, and I'm sorry, Noah hears from God and is told to go out from the ark. This is a this language is also a hyperlink to something going forward. Watch this here. Noah entered into the ark for salvation from judgment, the judgment on the world. And then he was told to go out from the ark and to spread life into the world. This parallels us. We entered into Christ, the ark of salvation, from the judgment on the world. And then we are told to go out from the church to spread new life to the world. You see the parallel there, how Noah parallels what we're supposed to be doing in this world. And then he tells them to bring out every living thing. Before, God had all the animals come to them, but now he's supposed to take them two by two and, and seven pairs of everything and bring them out with them and to bring out all the animals. And then the first thing that the Bible records Noah did, probably after he kissed the ground, <laughs> was to build an altar. What is an altar for? An altar is for worship. An altar is for sacrifice. Think back again. Here we have Adam and Eve. They sin. And what does God do? He tries to cover their sin. He successfully covers their sin by animal skins. He sacrifices an animal so that their sins can be covered. Now Noah is sacrificing animals. 
And of course, that's why he brought extra pairs of many of them so that he could sacrifice the clean ones. We don't know how many, but we know for sure one thing is that this is a big barbecue after a big boating trip, okay? And this is what Noah's doing, maybe celebrating Father's Day in a small way here. And he does the burnt offerings. Of course, burnt offerings were the type of offerings for sin. Now, so before Noah built a barn, before he built a house or anything, he built an altar. Now, think about Mr. and Mrs. Noah. Where's their house? It's been destroyed. Everything they worked for had been destroyed. You think he'd want to start building all that again. But now he's like, no, we're going to seek God first in this situation. Matthew 6, one of the first scriptures I memorized as a, a little boy was, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Noah did just that. He sought God first. First thing he did off the ark was to build an altar to worship God. We need to make sure that we put the worship of God first. That's why worship takes place when? The first day of the week, first thing in the morning. Sunday morning is God's time. We need to seek God first in that. And then let the rest of the week take care of itself. This is the time, this is a couple hours where we can just set aside the world, set aside the worries, set aside the work, and just focus on worshiping the God and give him that first part of the week. And then the rest of the week can fall into order. So now God makes a covenant with Noah. It says that when God smelled the pleasing aroma, see, God likes barbecue. Right there in Scripture, here's this big barbecue going on, all these different animals being barbecued, and God likes the sweet-smelling aroma of all that. And of course, in the Bible, the aroma of the burnt offerings is a picture of our prayers. The Bible says that our prayers are a fragrance to God. And so when we pray, think about that. God enjoys that in the same way you enjoy the smell of a good candle in your home or a good cooking. When mom puts an apple pie in the oven, all those things. God says your prayers are sweet to him like that. And he says, I will never again curse the ground. Do you see the hyperlink there? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? He cursed the serpent. He cursed childbirth with women. And he cursed the ground for Adam's sake. And God says, I'm not going to curse the ground anymore. He had cursed the ground by the flood. He flooded the whole earth and the ground. And he says, I will not do that anymore. And he says, and, he's, and, he, and why is he choosing not to curse the ground anymore? Is it because, okay, you learned your lesson, people. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. Even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's all people do is they think about evil all the time. He said, that's not why I'm doing it. He said, neither will I, again, strike down every living creature. He promises not to do a, a worldwide flood again. He says, as long as the earth shall remain, what, you're going to have everything count on like clockwork. There will be seed time and harvest. You know, there's a time to plant. There's a time to harvest. There's going to be the cold of winter, the heat of summer. There's going to be day and night. What he's referring to is all of the, the things that he put in the sky back to Adam and Eve how they were for signs and seasons. He said, you're going to be able to predict the weather, the seasons, and everything like clockwork from now on. And we haven't seen any change in that. In fact, you can tell what time it's going to be on a certain day, whatever, where the sun will be a thousand years from now because the sun is that precise. The earth going around the sun, that is. The moon going around the planet. All those things are super precise. And God says, this solar system is going to be in place until I come again, and I won't change that. And God blessed Noah and said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. There you go. Echoes again of Genesis. Okay? So Adam and his sons 
are going to fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Then God wipes it all out, starts all over with a man and three sons and tells them the same thing, be fruitful and multiply. Look at this. Adam had three sons that are named. He probably had a whole lot more than that, but the Bible, and Noah also had probably more than three sons, but God names in the scriptures three sons. The oldest was Cain. Was Cain a good guy? No. What did Cain do wrong? He, killed, he murdered his brother, the first murder right there. And then he had a youngest son, Seth, through which would come the godly line. And we studied the genealogies before. And look at this. Noah has mentioned three sons. The oldest is Ham. Just like Cain, he's ungodly. And we'll see why here next week. But the youngest is Shem. And God will continue the godly line through him. So he started through Seth. He continues it through Shem. But you see, again, another parallel between Adam and Noah. And then he says something really interesting. He says, I'm going to put the fear of you and the dread shall be upon every beast of the earth. Isn't it interesting how most animals, other than the ones we've domesticated, they see a human being and they run. Even many animals that could probably take you in a heartbeat will choose to run, okay? Unless it's just really hungry or you've agitated it or you've walked into its you know, domain. All animals are instinctively fear man more than they do any other animal. And that's by God's design. Somebody has once said, I don't remember who to attribute it to, but they said the reason animals look at you with fear is because they know that you're not right with their maker. Could be, that could be possibly what's going on there. And he says, and upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Again, a hyperlink back to Adam. Adam was given dominion or you know, hands-on responsibility for everything in creation for animals. So every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is new. Prior to this, what kind of diet did people have? It was all vegetarian. God told Adam and Eve, all the trees of the garden and everything that bears seed and all that stuff, you could freely eat. But now he's saying every living thing can be for your food. He said, you, but he said, this is what you, one caveat here. Don't eat it with its blood. And worldwide, butchers and people who process animals drain the blood. That's normal. Unless you're some type of Satanist, you don't just drink the blood. It's not really a good thing. But it, there's a symbolism here. It's important. He said, for your life, because what blood represents is life. And what's interesting about that is the Bible's told us that for a thousand years that your very life, your well-being, your health is in your blood. And even in recent history up until George Washington, people were bloodletting, thinking, get the blood out of them, get the blood out of them, they're sick. And the Bible's like, no, your blood is good. You need your blood. And our first president died because of bloodletting. If they had just read the Bible, they would have seen that the Bible is scientifically true and all that. But the blood represents something. It represents your life, that who you are, and, and that your health, not just physically, but spiritually, it's a symbol of that. He said, and I'm going to require a reckoning. If anybody kills someone, they're going to pay. Even if an animal kills someone. And what is customary in every Western culture, in most cultures around the world. If an animal kills a person, what happens to that animal? It's killed. You say, well, it doesn't know better, whatever. No, it's not about what the animal knows. It's about what just happened. A human being who's created an image of God just died, and whatever caused that has to go away, whether it's a person or whether it's an animal. He said, so whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, which is telling you how to do the, carry out the capital punishment. Say so you don't feed them to the lions. You don't do that. You have to, you know, whether it's by the sword or by hanging. And it says, for God made man in his own image. 
And some people say, well, you know, capital punishment, that's Old Testament. No, no, the New Testament teaches this as well. Romans 13, verse 4 says, for the ruler, let me see if I can get that to clear up here. There we go. It says, for the ruler is God, you know, those in government over us, they are God's servants for your good. That's what they're supposed to be. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not, what, bear the sword in vain. What do you do with the sword? You kill people, okay? It doesn't say, it doesn't say he doesn't, it has the gavel in vain. It's talking about the sword. For he is a servant of God. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So therefore, if you kill someone, it's up to the government to carry out capital punishment. So there's New Testament and Old Testament. And as believers, we are, we believe in capital punishment. Now, some people say, well, if you were truly pro-life, our Catholic friends will say that. If you were truly pro-life, you'd be pro-all life. Okay, I, I understand your point on that. Here's what my reply would be. We are pro-innocent life. If someone's innocent, you shouldn't take their life. Whether they're an innocent unborn baby or an innocent elderly person or anybody that's innocent. But if you take someone else's life, you're no longer an innocent life. Therefore, your life should be taken. So there's no contradiction or inconsistency there. So again, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Look at all these parallels, and again, we could probably cover a hundred of them, but I won't this morning because of time. Both the parallels between Adam and Noah, both came into a new world that had been previously covered by water. Both were given sun, moon, and stars, and signs for, and for seasons. Both were told to be fruitful and multiply. Both were given dominion over the animals. Both were told that what food they could and could not eat. Adam could not eat of the tree of life. Noah could not eat of the life blood. The parallel there. Both had the image of God presented as sacred. God said, let us create man in our image, referring to Adam and Eve. And then God said, protect mankind because they're created in our image. Adam rebelled against God in the garden by eating forbidden fruit. Noah, as we'll see later, rebelled against God by eating fruit in a forbidden way. And what do I mean by that? What did Noah do after he got off the ark, after he built the altar? What did he do? He made a vineyard and got drunk. So here you see fruit forbidden in, in, uh, in a way of disobedience. Both had their nakedness, as we'll see later with Noah, and shame revealed because of their transgression. And then, as a result of Adam's sin, mankind was placed under a curse for all generations. As a result of Noah's sin, Noah's son Canaan, related to Ham, had a curse placed on him and his descendants for all generations. Both Adam, Adam and Noah were given a sign of a new covenant. With Adam, it was the sacrificed animal to cover their sins. With Noah, what was the sign of the new covenant? The rainbow. Both demonstrate the grace of God. So in verse 8, God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant. Now, this is not the first covenant in the Bible, but this is the first time the word is used. If you compare this with what he gave Adam, he also had an Adam covenant, okay? He said, this is with you and your offspring and everyone after you. In fact, this is a covenant with all of mankind. He says, with every living creature that is with you. So it's not only to all people for all generations, it's to all the planet and all the animals on the planet. He says, this is what my covenant, there's several parts of it, but one of the main parts of the covenant is never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. Now, God will destroy the earth again in the future, but it won't be with water. What will it be with next time? It will be with fire. So 
This is all, also more evidence of why this is, cannot be a local flood. The, the language that he's used in the previous chapters is all, every, under the whole heavens. God is going out of his way to make sure you know this is not a regional flood. And also, if you consider the size of the ark, Noah would not have to build something so big and so massive for a regional flood. And then when you consider the number of animals he took, again, why would he take, if only that part of the world is being flooded and animals around the planet are fine, why would you have to take all the animals? Why not just let that part of the earth to be destroyed and then the animals, once that part dries up, the animals can repopulate there. So he takes the number of animals because he's trying to repopulate the whole world. And if Noah has 120 years before this flood happens, why not just get on your donkey and go drive somewhere else? You know, and go far away, get out of that region for a regional flood. It was obviously a worldwide flood. And the most important part is, if God says, I promise, I promise you, I will not flood the world again. If it was a regional flood, God has broken his promise a few million times. Because there have been a lot of regional floods around the planet. And that's the most important reason. Scientifically, it was a worldwide flood. But biblically also, it was a worldwide flood. Otherwise, God has broken his promise. It says, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Covenant is different than a contract. A contract says, I do my part, you do yours. If you break your part, I'm out of the contract. Or if I break my part, you're out of the contract. Covenant is, I'm going to keep my end regardless of what you do. I am going to lay out some requirements, but I'm going to keep my end no matter what. And that's what the Lord does. In fact, there's seven covenants in the Bible. So here we're going to go into Bible college mode here, okay? Let's look at these. Number one, there was an Adamic covenant, okay? And I won't read all this to you. But in Adam's covenant, he was given certain responsibilities. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't eat of the, the trees of knowledge of good and evil. And take care of the garden. So God gives them a commandments and responsibilities. And yet man disobeys. So God keeps up his end of the bargain. Still it recovers their sins. But then he moves into a new covenant with Noah. And again, he has some certain things he needs to do. And under this Noahic covenant, they're supposed to obey. And of course, at one point, Noah disobeys. He obeys up until the flood, but then afterwards he disobeys. And then he enters into a new covenant, Abrahamic covenant, where he got, tells, God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your, you out, out of you a nation, and it'll be like the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. And what you need to do is obey me, and I will bless you. And also in that Abrahamic covenant, there is the, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, which ties into the nation of Israel, which is Abraham is the founder of, which you will see out through history. Everybody who's cursed Israel, God puts a curse upon them. Everybody who blesses Israel, and that's why the United States needs to continue to, to be on Israel's side. There's the Palestinian covenant, which we're using that in a broader sense. The Palestinian area covers the whole land, not just Israel proper and the government, the whole land. And so this has been fulfilled twice where God through the Babylonian captivity, and also it was fulfilled in 1948 when God gave the land back to Israel. And so we see that's another covenant fulfilled. It'll be fulfilled for the third time when God does a new kingdom and the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and God sets up his capital to rule the world from Jerusalem. There's the Mosaic covenant, obviously named after Moses. And he basically says, here's my law, you keep it. How are people doing as far as keeping the Ten Commandments? Not very good, right? So you see this pattern. God says, hey, here's what I want you to do. People don't do it. God says, okay, well, here, try this, do this. And people don't do it. And you see this pattern happening over and over again. 
Then there's the, there's the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David that I'm going to bring a king into this world through your seed, through your lineage. We can follow your genealogy. And that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. And then there's the new covenant. Jesus said, behold, this is the new covenant in my blood when he's given the communion. And so God will forgive sin and he'll have a close unbroken relationship with his people. And that anyone, the responsibility given in the new covenant is come to Christ. Come to Christ, receive him as Lord and Savior, and you will be forgiven. This brings up an interesting topic now, what I would call dispensationalism. It's a big word, but the word dispensation is found in the Bible, depending on which translation you read. Other words are uh, um, responsibility or, uh, there's an A word I'm not thinking of, administration, that's the other word. And the King James is called a, a dispensation. The Greek word, hang with me here, is oikonomia, which sounds like economy, and that's exactly why. You know, we talk about, you know, the Biden economy or the Trump economy. It's like a, a situation of economic rules that you're operating under. This word economy is even broader. It means the set of rules or principles that you're operating under during a certain time or era. This is where you want to look at that other piece of paper with the blue on it, okay? And you, but follow along on the screen, though, as well. But I want you to keep that copy, fold it up and stick it in your Bible or somewhere at home. So there are seven dispensations. Again, we're not surprised by that number, right? God uses sevens a lot. The first dispensation is what we call innocence. Adam and Eve were not created perfect. If they were created perfect, they would not have sinned. They were created innocent, okay? And so they're innocent. They're given a choice. And of course, what do they do? They disobey. And in each situation, each one of these dispensations, man is given a set of responsibilities by which he fails, okay? But the first um, dispensation ends with Adam and Eve disobeying, and so God curses them, pronounces curses on them, and brings and death is introduced into the world. Then the next dispensation is the one of conscience. And basically God says, hey, do what, is, what you know is right. Because it says that the law of God, in the book of Romans, Paul says that the law of God is written upon every man's heart. The Murder didn't become wrong because we got Ten Commandments. They knew that all along. Cain knew it was wrong to murder, okay? The law was codified under Moses, put in writing, but all of us knew what it was before that. And so conscious. But did people follow their conscience? No, they, they did what was wrong anyway. So God says, you know what? Because every thought of man is evil, I'm just going to flood the world and I'm going to wipe it out. So then we enter to the next dispensation, which is the human government. This is where God says, okay, if someone kills someone, you as a culture, you as a society, you as a civilization, you will carry out punishment on that person. And starting with the highest crime, murder, working all the way down to every crime. So you're going to start governing over each other. So just you just controlling your family, but getting revenge on another family, you're going to establish a culture, human government. And of course, people fail in that way. And God says, you know what? You can't handle this. So I'm going to confound the languages. And so I'm going to spread out. Because God said, go in all the world and be fruitful and multiply. And what do they do? They all gathered around the Tower of Babel. They failed to govern each other properly. So God says, you know what? I'm going to scatter you and establish the languages. And even archaeology backs up these basic root languages spreading out at one instantaneous time in history. So languages started there. And then we have the next dispensation, which is starts with all this pre previous was Gentiles. Because there was no Jew or Gentile. Jews has not been established. So now Israel will start here. 
And the first dispensation for them is promise. God gives a promise to Abraham. I will bless you and anyone who curses you I will curse and I will multiply your seed like the stars of heaven, etc. And of course, Israel fails. So God sends them into Egyptian bondage because they did not trust him. So they go into bondage. But then God enters into a new dispensation with Noah, I mean with Moses, and he gives them the law. He brings them out. And of course, again, do people keep the law? No. In every dispensation, they're failing with the responsibilities God's given. And so what's the consequence of breaking the law? Jesus takes the punishment for your sins and breaking the law. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. He takes all your sins upon him on the cross, and that's the consequence there. And then we, this is the age that we live in right now. It's called the age of grace, where we went from Gentiles to Jews to now to the church. And the church is Jews and Gentiles all mixed, living under God's dispensation. And in this dispensation of age of grace is repent and trust Christ as Savior. And, to go, and for the responsibility given to the church is to go into all the world and preach that gospel. And so this dispensation ends with judgment again because people don't accept Christ. And so you see how before it was the curse, it was the flood, it was the languages, it's Egyptian bondage. You follow the track on the bottom there. And now God sends tribulation. How many years is the tribulation? Seven years. Seven years of God pouring out his wrath in a different way. He poured out his wrath during the flood. Now he pours out his wrath during this tribulation. And so then the last dispensation and is a thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. This is the next thing. And so you look at this page you have in your hand. This is God's week of history. And God has kept all his promises, has he not? He's kept all his promises. Now, will he not also keep his promise to return, to keep his promise to judge the world, to set up his kingdom, and to rule and reign, to wipe away all tears? And so if you see yourself on this map right here, realize, wait a minute, God really does hold history in his hands. God really can be trusted with my life. And I'm not just one person just living my life the way I want to, but I actually fit into God's sovereign plan that he set up before the foundations of the earth. Think about that. That This is a roadmap. You know, we used to use maps. Remember folding up maps in your car? You know, but now we have GPS and you follow the GPS. You know how like on GPS, you can push the arrow that shows you exactly where you're at and what your next turn is, but then you can push the the one that's the bigger view, and it opens up the whole thing. And you can say, hey, here's where we are. You know, we're on our way. Like this past week, we went to Oklahoma for Thanksgiving. And so I could push that thing and say, look, here's where we are. We just left Bucky's in Madisonville. We've got a few hours left, and we'll be in Oklahoma, you know? And you see that big picture, and you know you can drive with confidence knowing it's all okay. And you can look at God's big GPS here and see, hey, here's where we are. And we know that our time is short and that Jesus is coming. And of course, that one ends with the great white throne. Because even during Jesus' thousand years reign, there will be some people who will reject Christ. Isn't that crazy? And then the great white throne of judgment will not just be for those people, but for all people of all time. Everybody who has ever lived, who has not accepted Christ, will be resurrected. And there will be a great white throne of judgment. And every lost person will stand before Jesus Christ and will be given their, their proper sentence. So Jesus, uh, God says that this is a sign. It's a symbol. It's, it represents something. It's a, the, the sign of the covenant. And he says, here's going to be my, my sign. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud. 
Now, I want you to notice, it does not say rainbow. Now, we know it's a, a rainbow, but it, the rainbow is named after a bow. And in Hebrew, there's different words for different types of bows. There's a type of bow you take hunting. That's not what this one is. This is a type of bow you would take into battle. Okay, so here is a, a bow. Okay, I brought Isaiah's from home. Turn it over here. Not a very high-tech one, but anyway. Think about a bow. This is, this, obviously, one you take in battle would be much more sophisticated than this, I guess. But if I'm pointing the bow, if, if I'm holding it like this, which way is the arrow going? That way. If I'm pointing it this way at Mark, which way is it going? Okay. I want you to notice something here. Um, this, this is a warrior bow, not a hunting bow. And which way is it going? Which way is the arrow going to fly? Think about that. During the flood, God's wrath was taken out on people on earth. And God says, I'm not going to do that anymore. As you continue to sin, Jesus Christ on the throne is going to take the arrow. Isn't that amazing? That's what the rainbow is about. It's about Jesus Christ will be the target of God's wrath in the future and that he won't punish you anymore for it. And what's super, super sad and I don't think it's, it's a coincidence, is that it's been turned into a symbol for perversion. And people are saying, hey, we're not gonna, we will not let God rule over us. We are not going to do what we've been created to do. We are going to take God's design and we're going to totally pervert it and destroy it. This is not just something that people uh, have a right to do. That's, legally, I'm not talking about making it illegal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about before God, people say, this is my life. You will not tell me what to do. And we all, before we get too hard on them, we do this too. We do this every day with our thoughts and with our choices. But it is kind of ironic that the very thing that God poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, poured out his wrath on Noah's flood, has done this several times through history. They take that symbol of God's grace and mercy and they turn it into a, a rebel sign. So the rainbow is God's arch. It's like, it's like a bow, but it's pointed towards the throne because Jesus Christ will take the arrow on the cross of Calvary. That's what the rainbow is about. It's not about that other stuff. I wish we could take back the rainbow. Let's, and you, if you think about it, you've been with your kids and you see after the rain and you're driving, and somebody's like, oh, look, a rainbow. And it doesn't matter whether you're four or 54, rainbows are exciting. And I think God has done that on purpose because it reminds us of his grace and Christ taking our punishment on the cross. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak, think about all those people during the flood, all throughout history, unable to do all those things in each dispensation, God's, okay, let's start over. Can you do this? Nope. <laughs> okay, let's start over. Can you at least do this? No. And it's like everywhere man has failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament, kept all of the law perfectly, did everything obediently. And while we were the ones that are weak, Christ died for us, the ungodly. He took the arrow for us. And think about this. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, some would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died, took the arrow, took God's wrath for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Remember, the life is in the blood, what Noah's telling him about. He said, much more we shall be saved 
by Jesus from the wrath of God. Just like Noah and his family got into the ark, every lost person is asked to come into Christ. He is the ark of salvation. He's the one who took that arrow upon the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of what the ark means. We're so thankful for where we fit in history and that we have a roadmap that shows us where we're going. But Father, all this is just interesting information if it doesn't result in in the, the saving of our soul. So Father, this morning, if there's someone who doesn't know you, I pray that today they're able to receive Christ. They would enter into the ark of salvation that Christ provides through his death, through his burial and his resurrection. Father, I thank you that we have hope in him alone. And we praise him in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So if you made a decision to trust Christ, man, I would love to have a conversation with you. Lord willing, we're going to be baptizing possibly two people next week. If you would like to be one of them, let me know. Um, Salvation is entrusting Christ. Baptism is your outward expression of that salvation. And again, if you know someone who benefit from hearing these kind of things and would find this interesting, please invite them, pray, and invite them to join you next week. And um, how many of you are keeping up with the reading plan? I've noticed a lot of y'all, and it's been really good. Even this morning's was like perfect for, I was listening, I was I'm walking my dogs this morning, and this morning's devotion just fit this message perfectly. All right, let's do a, a question and answer time. Heather Patterson, would you like to help me? Just put you on the spot right there. So yeah, text in your questions. There's our first question right there. Um, yes, does that one work, Matt? This, this what? Yeah, go ahead and pick that up, and you can just start wait whether they got it on or not. Maybe, maybe not. Let me pull it. Pull it up. There you go. Just start, just start. There is not enough water on the planet, including glaciers and groundwater, to flood 100% of the earth. Where do you think God put the water from the flood? Yeah, I talked about this, I think, four weeks ago, and I'll, I'll send out the link. So just recently, I say recent as in like six or seven years ago, I don't remember exactly Under the planet, and now they do say that there's enough water there that could have flooded the earth from the fountains of the deep. I'll have to look at that article. I shared it like four weeks ago, and uh, I do believe scientifically that there, that God's word is true, and that there was enough water, but not just from the canopy above, but from the fountains of the deep below. So I'll send out that link to the whole church. Um, any other questions? No. Anybody have a question here this morning? Want to raise your hand? Nathan, go ahead. Sure. Um, so it talks about Cain had a son and then, and that after him, that that's when they started worshiping other gods. And then it talks about in Seth's line, that they both had a Lamech and it says that Lamech in his day, men began to call upon God. So right around there is when people started coming back to God and worshiping God. So you don't have to be a Jew to be saved. Obviously, Abraham was taken out of the earth of the Chaldees. And he starts from him, um, the Shemites, or what we call Semites, or that's where you get the word anti-Semitic, okay? That's where the Jewish line started. But not all Jews knew God. So there were people prior to Abraham that knew God. Uh, Enoch walked with God, okay? So all throughout the the ancestry, you see 
um, Seth's godly line, and of course it's preserved through Shem, there's always a group of people who do know God. And that doesn't mean if you're in the ungodly line, you can't be saved. There's people in the ungodly line. In fact, in Jesus' genealogy, there's people outside of the Seth line that knew God. Okay, so that's a really good question, though. Any other texts that came in? All right, cool. All right, let's, uh, let's yes. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that that one is it. I, I don't, it doesn't have to be it for the Bible to be true. Yeah. So the, what was the impression around the sediments that were surrounded the base or the hull of the ark is what they believe formed that, okay? And that, that some wood was preserved in that, but not obviously not, there's nothing there. There's not a boat. There's an impression of where a boat landed or an ark landed. Again, whether that's it or not, I don't know. Um, they, there was a bunch of scientists who dismissed it, but then there's a recently, they, and I forget what the science is called, where they, I don't know how to explain it. I'll, send, I'll have to send out a link for that too. Where they took measurements and thermographed or something like that. And it looked like, oh, wow, maybe there could have been it. But again, it doesn't have to be it for the Bible to be true. Uh, whether we find God, Noah's Ark ever, I don't know. And a lot of people are focused on Mount Ararat. The Bible doesn't say it landed on Mount Ararat. It said the mountains of Ararat, which is a whole range. So I believe it landed somewhere in that whole mountain range. Whether it was specifically that mount or not, I don't know. That's a good question, though. And uh, remind me to send out that link. Any other questions? All right, let's stand. And we're going to, um, I believe there's a verse of Scripture. Matt, if you'll go to the next slide for me. Let's read this together aloud as we're dismissed with God's blessings. Numbers 6, verse 24 together says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless y'all. Have a great weekend.